Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the First Intuition Student Podcast. My name is Ben Bullman, and I'm joined this evening by my good friend and colleague, David Malthouse. Good evening, Dave. Good evening, Ben. And how has your week been? Um, lots of teaching again this week. I'm currently doing some AAT Level 4 teaching. Today, I've been teaching some ACCA audit. Um, but really great. We have now got quite a significant chunk of students that have started new courses, all of them really targeting sitting exams this side of the new year. So it's a really, really busy time. We've done previous episodes of the podcast talking about setting targets. We're really now getting to the business end of it. I've actually been talking to my class today about who has booked their exam, even though that exam is not until ideally the first week of December. So we have been committing to get a target date, and now we are following through on that, making sure that we're doing the necessary tuition, um, practicing questions. Day one of the course, Dave, and we did an exam question in class today just to get people aware of how this might come up in the exam. So it's practice what you preach time now for, for the tutors in the classrooms. <laughs> Dave, how's your week been going? It's been good. We have got some results just kind of over the hill, haven't we, coming up over the next few weeks. So there are some nervous students that I've seen that are waiting for some ACCA and some ICAW results. But today I was at a director's club morning event, which was at a place called Top Golf. Now, I don't know if you're aware of Top Golf, Ben. I've heard of Top Golf. Yeah, I can't say I've ever been, but I'm aware. Is it a driving range? Golf. Well, it, I say uh, my description is it's somewhere between 10 pin bowling and a golf driving range. So you have 20 golf balls allocated to you that all have got microchips inside. And then you hit those balls out onto the course and you've got various different targets that you need to hit. And depending on how close you get to those targets, you get a number of points allocated to you. Similar to bowling, if you get really close to a target, then the score you get on the next ball is doubled. So you can build up big scores by getting close to targets and then the next one close to targets. And um, I don't like to say who won, Ben, so I won't mention it too, too much. But it happened to be me um, with a score of 129. So I was very, very surprised as I'm rubbish at actual golf. But top golf, it appears I have a real knack for. Well, congratulations. Um, I don't really know what to say to that other than um, it sounds really good. I'm no golfer myself, but I think that would be a bit more entertaining than walking around a massive field for potentially 18 holes trying to find a ball that I'd lost. Sounds like it's a bit more rapid fire, a bit more fun. Were you doing it in a sequence order or did you just fire out your 20 balls or did it be? No, we did it in a sequence time? order. So we had a group of, I think, five of us in our bay and we we're all hitting one of the other. And then there are another, there are three or four other bays that were all being used. Um, it was, as we talked about in other shows, it, the idea was it was a networking event. So I was there to speak to other business owners, other directors, people that were running companies where we could talk about similar things that we had in common and issues that we were all experiencing. And the fact that it's centered around an event makes it a little bit less awkward to have those conversations than it also than it sometimes is when you're walking into a room 
grabbing a stale sandwich and then trying to look for someone to break into a conversation with. So it's quite a nice way of getting to meet people and spend a couple of hours with them and just really find out all about their businesses, about what they're getting up to, about the challenges they face. So really, really good time. Excellent. Well, I'll, I'll give it a look. As I say, I am no golfer myself, but I think I could tolerate maybe a bit of top golf. So who knows? Maybe me and you will get together for one of our planning meetings for future podcast episodes over a quick round of top golf. That sounds like a brilliant lunchtime. We've got a theme for tonight's episode. We wanted to do an episode that was a bit different. So this one's a slightly different style to the ones we have done previously. We wanted to talk about fraud, but we wanted to do it with a practical case study, something that really we can get our teeth into. Dave, you've done a bit of research. You've been looking up some information around a fraud case, and we're going to use that really to structure the discussion this evening. So when we had our chat before we were kind of planning the session out in detail, you came up with a, a couple of scenarios we could use. What is our case study for this evening? Well, something that I always like to, and I'm sure you do, Ben, is in, in lessons, I like to use practical examples. And I like to use practical examples that people are aware of. So something that's in the news today would be something that I'd like to use as a practical example in class. So today, uh, when I opened my BBC News app, and I looked at the business news. The first thing I saw on there is, is the fact that the, the sandal company Birkenstock has just listed and gone through an IPO. And so I'm instantly thinking, I know those sandals. My wife's got a pair. She swears by them. She has the same pair for years. They last brilliantly. They're really comfortable. I wonder how much it's worth. Who's bought the shares? Why has it been sold? How did they get that valuation? And I'm thinking all these questions. And if I'm teaching business valuations over the next few weeks, I'm going to be talking Birkenstock because everyone knows them. And if you don't know them, someone else in the class does, and they're willing to talk about their experience of them. And if you go back over the last few years, there's loads of stories like that. So I, I had huge amounts of mileage in class talking about Carillion uh, and the collapse of Carillion and Patisserie Valerie and at the beginning of this year, end of last year, all about the FTX collapse. So every Every day there's a business story and every year or every six months or so, there's something really big that happens that I can really get my teeth into and I can really show to illustrate things in class. And this one I remember happening back in 2014. And this was kind of almost drip fed into the news. You got bits of it and the story went on over a matter of months as we saw the kind of fallout from it. And I talked about it loads in class from the point of view of the account that went on obviously it's a very very big fraud otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it tonight but also the impact that it had on investors and the impact that it had on share price the impact that it had on the board of directors all of those things are all kind of covered within this particular fraud so back in 2014 there's a big fraud fraud that's surrounded Tesco. So for those of you that are not in the UK and you're not aware of Tesco, Tesco is a very big supermarket chain. Um, it's probably, the, well, I think it still is the biggest supermarket chain in the UK. I know overseas it doesn't have the same kind of brand around it so if you are based in spain you may never have heard of tesco until you've come to the uk but in the uk it's an absolutely huge 
supermarket chain. So today we're going to look at that fraud and try and understand a little bit about what happened and the outcome of it. But what I'd like to do is try and just kind of pull apart bits of it and see how it fits in with some of our accounting syllabus across AAT or ACCA or ICW or SEMA, because all of them can we can really pick bits of this this fraud apart and find things that are going to help us in our studies. I like the fact it's a business that I'm sure every student I have taught in a classroom would understand what we are talking about. So I think straight away we've picked one that's very relatable. You can understand what they do. You can visualize. And I'm a great visual learner. I believe if I can build a picture of this thing in my head, I understand things much better. I'm just going to do a caveat at the start and say we've referred to this as a fraud, but technically nobody was legally prosecuted for fraud on the back of it. Something I'm sure you're going to talk about in the implications and the ramifications of it. Um, clearly, there was some accounting irregularities and a bit of an accounting scandal. So that's where we're going to start. Dave, I hope everybody listening understands who Tesco's are, what they do. Do you want to give us a quick overview of what was happening at that time in 2014 or in the run up to it when this started being disclosed in the media? Absolutely. So 2014 was a really tough time for Tesco's. So Tesco had for years been the biggest supermarket in the UK. There was a time that Tesco's was seen to be the dominant force on the high street in the UK. And, you know, there, there were crazy statistics going on about how one in every five pounds worth of retail expenditure went to Tesco rather than any other retailer in the UK. They, they were absolutely dominant in the early part of this century and the later part of last century. By the time we get around to 2014, some of that shine had worn off a little bit. And Tesco were facing a number of different pressures. So the first pressure they had was the competitive pressures that they're still facing right now. So we were starting to see new entrants into the UK supermarket. And you know who those new entrants are, Ben? I would imagine what we call the, the discount supermarkets. So the likes of Aldi, Lidl's that really just came out of nowhere and popped up all over the country really quickly. Absolutely. Those those discount supermarkets were coming in, grabbing market share by selling you know, good quality food at much, much lower prices than Tesco were charging at the time. So part of their market share was being eroded. I'm already thinking a little bit of Michael Porter here, aren't we? And the Porter's five forces and the competitive rivalries and these new entrants coming into the market. Yeah. You were also starting to see the rise on the dominance of online shopping. So those things that, that Tesco were selling as well as their groceries. So where you could buy home furnishings and where you could buy clothes and things like that. We can now buy online at the same price or if not cheaper with a bit more convenience. So Amazon's rising and people are buying those things that are non-food from Amazon and the food sales, which is the core of their business, is gradually being eaten away by these new competitors coming into the marketplace. So it's a tough time in 2014. Another thing that's happening in 2014, and this is something that you're going to love, Ben, because it's a real nerdy accountancy point, is that they went through a process of looking at all of their um, their 
buildings and all of their land. And they were looking at the value of the buildings and land. And in 2014, they had to write down an impairment loss on the value of all of that property. And they had to write down a total of £4.3 billion. So 2014, they knew was going to be a horrid, horrid year. It was going to display a really big loss. And we had all these competitive pressures uh, uh, riding there. So that's really the, the scene that Tesco's in at that point in time. Okay, we're all okay there, Ben. Happy. Um, well, they weren't quite clearly because they are now at risk of publishing accounts that weren't going to show a really stellar performance. And I suppose on the back of all of those years where they'd been seen as the superstar brand, they are now worried what's going to be the problems and implications if we have to start publishing results and people see that actually the business is maybe declining a bit from where they once were. Absolutely. So there's big pressure on them now. Tesco's is a listed company. It's one of the, the biggest companies in the UK. So it's in the FTSE 100. As a result, Tesco has to publish regular financial reports to its shareholders. So not just the financial statements that are produced every 12 months, but they have to produce regular trading reports. And if Tesco realised that something is happening that's going to mean that their profits are higher or lower than forecast, they are encouraged by the markets in the UK to disclose that as quickly as they possibly can, okay, to make sure that investors have got access to all information that's out there so they can make decisions about their shareholdings. So the, the impairment losses, they would be things that shareholders would be aware of. They would have been told these impairment losses are coming. We've written down the value of our, our buildings. We've written down the value of our land. So we know they're coming. Okay, but profits, if profits are falling, that's something we need to tell them about as they're falling. And that's where the real issue is with this particular scandal that Tesco had, is that they were found to have overstated their profits in some of those releases to the market. Now, the initial estimates were that they'd overstated their profits by £250 million. I think that estimate gradually increased to about £360 million over a period of time. So they were inflating their profits to make it look like they were more profitable than they actually were. And that's a particular kind of fraud I think initially people think of fraud as stealing money. But what you've just said is no one was physically stealing money from Tesco's as a business. This was another kind of financial fraud that we would call misrepresentation. They were knowingly falsifying their financial reports to make the business look like they were performing better than they really were. What was the basis behind how they could overstate their profits, Dave? Well, as I always tell people in class, there's two ways to make your profits bigger. Number one way to make your profits bigger is to increase the amount of revenue you've got. And the other way to make your profits bigger is to reduce the element of cost that you've got. And I always tell people that if you want to make your business more profitable, you know, you've got to sell more stuff at a higher price and reduce the cost of the stuff that you're, you're producing. Now, what Tesco did is they were able to, first of all, not record all of the expenditure they should have done. So when they were buying goods, say they were buying milk to put on their shelves, they weren't recording that purchase invoice maybe till the next month. So they recorded the income that they received for it, or they recorded it in inventory to say that they held it, but the actual purchase of it wasn't recorded till the next month. So they were actually reducing the value of their purchases by misrecording where that purchase took place. 
And that's some basic accounting treatment. We teach that all the way through, all the way from level two qualifications up through level seven, something we call the accruals concept. Yep. Making sure that if we're producing financial reports, we match the income and the expense in the same period because the income less the expense gives us the profit. And if there's a mismatch, we are at risk of publishing results that give a misleading profit. And that, by the sound of it, is what Tesco's were doing. Absolutely. And that's what, as auditors, that's one of the fundamental tests that we carry out is a test of cutoff to ensure that the the year end or the month end or whatever period we're looking at, the purchases are, 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 are true or on the right side of it or the purchase they're not true on the other side of it. So that they did it with cost. They also did it with revenue. Now, when I when I first read about this and they said that they'd overstated revenue, I thought, how do you overstate revenue in a business that's largely cash-based? You go into Tesco and you pay with your card, with your credit card, or you pay with cash on the day you buy stuff. It goes through the till on the day you buy stuff. How could you possibly overstate it and say oh actually i'm going to record next week's sales today i just don't understand how that could happen but when you looked into what did happen they were actually recording income from their suppliers earlier than they should have done so it was a funny type of income that they were recording to try and inflate the amount of revenue they have now i i really struggled with that to start with so ben do you why would a company like tesco's do you think record income from a supplier because i was thinking you pay suppliers you don't receive income from them straight away i would imagine people are screaming out listening to you on their headphones saying dave you've surely got that wrong because something i get my students to think about particularly in the early stages of their studies is the fact we get income from customers and we incur expenses from suppliers but tesco's were being a bit clever and what they were doing was going to their suppliers. If I wanted to sell my product in a Tesco store, they would say, that's fine, Ben. But if you want us to promote it, if you want your item to be at the end of an aisle on a special offer that people see and therefore buy more of your product than somebody else's, we're going to charge you for that, which is a weird concept. But effectively, Tesco's and I believe other supermarkets do this. This wasn't exclusively Tesco's and actually nothing wrong with that. They were charging their suppliers for promoting their goods in store over other goods, which means they were receiving income from suppliers, which sounds wrong. But genuinely, that's what was happening. And that was OK. I think the issue comes with the timing of that income being recorded. And like any business, they want to record the income as soon as possible. Income is good for profit. And so they were recognizing that much earlier than actually the products that they were promoting were being sold. So, again, we've got a mismatch. We've got an accounting adjustment at the end of the period that is an element of estimate. But therefore, management could potentially manipulate that to recognise it earlier. Is is that what you were reading into it, Dave, when you've been looking at what was going on? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's that that two way flow of money that you're getting. Now, the practical side of it is that 
Tesco aren't going to be receiving money and paying money to the same person. Practically, what's going to happen is it will net off. But Tesco are saying, okay, it's February now, but in March, I'm going to put all these products in the end of an aisle and I'm going to be paid for it. I'm going to record the invoice today rather than next month when it actually happens. So it is something that I know a lot of students struggle initially with that when they're studies about accruals and prepayments. It's something that's so important you understand to make sure that those things are done correctly because we're trying to ensure that the right revenue, the right expenditure is recorded in the right periods. And Tesco had taken advantage of that in order to make their profits appear higher than they actually were. And as we said earlier, that we're looking at £250 million pounds worth of additional profits. Now, you as an auditor, Ben, you would probably think I'd pick up about it, pick that up in my audit. But remember, these are you know, regular statements that are issued to the market. They're not the year-end financial statements. They're, they're saying, this is what our profit is currently looking like. And we see these profit statements released all the time. And they don't have to have a statutory audit in the way that the financial statements do. They may have an auditor's report attached to them. They may not have an auditor's report attached to them. There isn't the same scrutiny over these releases as there are over other financial documents. It's a really clever one, actually. It's quite complex because me and you were slightly scratching our heads thinking what's going on, and we are experienced accountants and experienced accountancy tutors, it's also quite easy to disguise. People listening to this will be talking about deferred income, and surely any income that's deferred would be a liability on the business's balance sheet. And that's exactly right. The issue we've got here is they also were a supplier as well as a potential customer who they were invoicing. Mm -hmm. So as Dave said, those two balances could be netted off what we call a contra. And it was more the timing of that net off that was the problem. They might have owed their supplier some money in the next 30, 60, 90 days. And that supplier technically might have knownly offset it in another six months down the road. But in their balance sheet, they were able to net it off now. So it looked much harder to spot. Nobody could see this sticking out like a sore thumb. So I think it's quite a complex issue and it does rely on timing. But lots of misrepresentation fraud are to do with mistiming of transactions in accounts to get the revenue in earlier and the costs in later. And in between times, you've published your accounts. So people think, aren't they performing well? Absolutely right, Ben. Absolutely right. And it's it, it seems so simple when we talk about it in terms of, yeah, just add a bit more income in, take a bit of cost off and your profits get a bit higher. <coughs> and it's something that as management of Tesco, if you're on the board of directors and you're getting presented with these reports, you're sitting there thinking, oh, actually, we're doing OK. We're hitting our targets. And the headline figures look really, really good. So I think it's the case that you know most of the management of Tesco wouldn't be aware or probably wouldn't have the knowledge to understand that a fraud like this could be occurring. So it's quite clever the way that it works. It's not people just stealing money, okay? although you could argue that, you know, that, that there was a financial 
disadvantage that a group of people did suffer as a result of this. And I think we'll come to that a little bit later on. But it's, yeah, it is quite clever in the fact that it's quite nicely tied up and concealed, at least in the short term. So we've got a basis of what was going on in the lead up to it. I suppose now two things are jumping into my mind. We can talk about how this all came out in a moment, but let's jump to the outcomes because this, when it hit the news, was big news. Everybody in the country, as we say, had heard of Tesco's. So if there's any whiff of a scandal to do with Tesco's, this is newsworthy item. But there were also some wider implications for Tesco's and beyond. So what, what were some of the outcomes when this fraud was discovered? When it was discovered and it and news was released, and we, we will come to how that news was released a, a, a little bit later on. But when the news was released, share price the share price of Tesco took an absolute hammering. So the value of Tesco shares dropped, and overall the total value of Tesco's dropped by a total of two billion pounds. So we saw two billion pounds wiped off the value of a company purely because a news story came out from Tesco saying. The profits that we thought we were making when we released our last profit statement are actually £250 million higher than we expected. So £2 billion was wiped off the value of Tesco. Let's just let's just talk about that because that's not Tesco's losing £2 billion. Who actually suffers when the share price of a company falls, Dave? And maybe you could talk about how the share price crashed so quickly. Well, first thing, the, the people who suffer are the shareholders, so people that own shares in Tesco. And I know a lot of people listening will say, that's fine, I don't own shares in Tesco. However, if you have got a pension fund, and I would hope everyone listening that's in employment at the moment has got a pension fund. If you're in the UK, you legally should have a pension fund, providing I think you're over the age of 21. If you have that pension fund, it will almost certainly be taking your money and investing it in the stock market. It will be investing it in shares of companies, shares of relatively big, relatively safe companies. And if they're investing in UK companies, they will definitely have a shareholding in Tesco. So if you had a pension in back in 2014 and that two billion pounds hit happens Tesco, that would hit your share, your, your pension fund, your retirement. So that effectively that fraud was costing every single pension holder in the whole of the UK an amount of money. So it's something that it's an odd one because you wouldn't feel it at that moment. But if that hadn't have happened and that fraud wouldn't have happened, then Tesco share price would be that bit higher. Your pension fund would be that bit higher and you may be a little bit more comfortable in your retirement than you would have been or, or that you are now. So maybe we could just touch on why the share price would fall so rapidly based on that news, because we said the profits had only been over. I say only had been only overstated by anywhere between 250 million and 300 million. Why would share prices fall so drastically on the announcement that this scandal was coming together? As I say, there are two reasons. And one of the ratios that I know you like to teach, Ben, and I love to talk about is the price to earnings ratio. 
where most companies are operating on a certain ratio of value or price share price compared to their earnings. Now, if you are trading on a price to earnings ratio of, say, 10, that means the value of a share is 10 times the earnings or the profit that that company makes per share. So if a company's profitability falls, then multiply that by the same number and it's just not worth as much money. So that's number one thing. And that would happen anyway. If it, if Tesco was less profitable than it should have been, that share would be overvalued if it didn't reflect the profit figure. The other thing that it's going to impact is people's view of Tesco. Up until that point, people thought Tesco was a safe and well-run company that deserved the price earnings ratio that it had. But now Tesco's has uncovered a fraud and irregularity. And there are question marks over some of the senior executives and what kind of say they had in this fraud, whether they were responsible for it, whether they knew it happened, whether they did enough. And because there are now questions over management, people aren't quite as trusting as Tesco as they would have been before. So that price to earnings ratio might be that investors were happy to have a 10 times price earnings ratio, but now they're only happy to have an eight price earnings ratio because they're not as happy or as confident in the ability to, of management to safely negotiate Tesco through you know, the turbulent time it was going through. So that's something we hear a lot, market confidence. And clearly this rattled the confidence that the stock market and external investors had in Tesco's and now, I guess, practically speaking, they're thinking, well, if this is coming out, there could be other things that we as yet don't know about. So usually we kind of have a, a negative reaction to that. And we would say we're not going to pay as much to buy shares in the market now. And there might have been some shareholders that thought I want to remove myself from any yeah. damage here. So I'm going to start selling my shares. And that's where normal market forces kick in. If too many of the existing shareholders say we want out of this, we're going to sell our shares. They flood the market with shares and that naturally causes the yeah. price to crash. It's supply and demand, isn't it? Absolutely. So that, that was headline news. That was headline news in the day that the Tesco share price had fallen by two million. What I remember some... talking. Oh, so I, was, I remember talking to my classes about that and saying it's fallen by the value of two billion and most of the people in my class me included didn't understand what two billion was because it's such a big number now we know two billion is what it's two thousand million because we're talking we all talk in american billions now rather than the old-fashioned uk one so two thousand million now what someone in one of my classes said is they said well in in cambridge where i was working at the time there there was a a lovely road that had houses that were priced at around a million pounds each and they just said to me that's like two thousand of those houses just disappearing the falling value two thousand houses that's what that's a that's a reasonable sized town in terms of the value of the property just vanishing because of one piece of news being released which is just incredible to think about so that was the headline grabber. But then this thing rolled and rolled and rolled. What were some of the medium and longer term implications of what transpired was happening at Tesco's? Well, the, the over time, there was a series of different prosecutions that that took place. And this is for the for the law people out there. 
And yeah, Ben, I know you've taught some law. I've taught some corporate law as well. And one of the challenges with things like fraud, or if you ever come across it, things like insider dealing, one of the challenges is that these are all criminal cases. And in a criminal case, you've got a really, really high burden of proof that you need to be able to show so in, in a criminal case you've got to show beyond reasonable doubt that someone is guilty of whatever it is that they're accused of so it's it's really hard to be able to prove beyond reasonable doubt that someone deliberately perpetrated a fraud so virtually everything that we end up kind of going through in in a case like this goes through the civil courts and the civil courts are about disputes between different kinds of individual and civil courts usually center around penalties that are paid or some kind of compensation. And looking through various different news clippings, we know that Tesco paid kind of 85 million pounds in compensation to some investors, 129 million pounds in fines to various different regulators. I believe 235 million pounds was paid to the um, serious fraud office um, on what is referred to as a deferred prosecution arrangement, which I don't know if you've come across a deferred prosecution arrangement before, Ben, hopefully not in your personal life. Um, Not personally, but I have done a bit of reading up on it. So a deferred prosecution is basically a settlement in advance of any guilt or liability being decided by the court. So it's almost like they come to the agreement with the regulators. Dave, you've mentioned the Serious Fraud Office. They were also being investigated by the Financial Conduct Authority. And they kind of went to these guys and said, shall we just settle with you now, rather than it going on for years and years and years with burdens of proof that you were talking about through court systems They kind of settled up. But one of the caveats of that was they had to financially recompense any shareholders that could prove they bought and sold shares in the period that their share prices had gone from being inflated and down to the crash. And they actually had a national campaign, probably a worldwide campaign, actually, to say if you were a shareholder affected, you could contact And there was a whole process of effectively getting some compensation. And as you say, ultimately, that resulted in £85 million being paid out to compensate shareholders for the loss they had suffered if they'd bought and sold the shares at the wrong time when they'd been inflated or had fallen in value. So there's some of the, the ramifications of what was going on. But what I'm actually quite interested in, Dave, is thinking about how this was identified, because it sounds like it's quite a complex issue. We're not sure exactly who may or may not have been involved or known what was potentially going on. But clearly somebody spotted this as an irregularity and a potential fraud. What have you found out about how this was uncovered? Ben, I found a hero. Um, what, what There aren't many heroes in accountancy. And generally, when we get these kind of frauds, we tend to find that accountants have, have been doing something incorrectly or accountants have been involved in it. But there, there's a chap that was working at Tesco called Amit Sony. And he suspected that profits were being overstated 
And he suspected that the information that was being released to the market was not a fair representation of how Tesco had been performing. And he almost followed what I would say would be kind of a textbook process of what you should do as an accountant in this situation. He immediately went to his superiors in the finance department. So he immediately went to them and said, this is what I'm concerned about, okay, and explained his concerns. And he didn't really get much back from them. Okay, there, there were uh, uh, comments that I've seen in kind of various different interviews have been put together, whether people didn't want to hear it, um, or people saying that um, this will all be cleared up at the year end when the audit takes place, um, or we're going to carry on with this kind of process. We've got a new chief exec that's coming in, and then when they come in, we'll change the way that we do things. So there wasn't anyone that was really taking it seriously. So then what Amit did is he carried out his own covert operation to try and uncover the extent to which this fraud that he suspected of taking place was present in Tesco. And he went to all the different departments of Tesco to work out what income they should be receiving from different suppliers, when it related to, when it should have been received, when it was recorded, did the same with purchases. And he put together a file of... That, that painted a picture of where the misrepresentation took place. Now, he'd already been to his immediate manager and he hadn't got any comeback, so he had to go somewhere else. And where he went was to the legal department within Tesco. So he prepared a report. He'd had his whole team working on this with him and they all worked almost in complete secrecy because they didn't want to be tipping other people off that they were aware that this was taking that this investigation was taking place they compiled a document okay he then sends it to the legal team the legal team immediately recognize what the issue is they take it to the board of directors the board of directors recognize what's happened and it's within a matter of hours they're preparing a statement to go to the market to explain what has happened so it's it's just the story of, of this guy who recognises something's wrong and he goes through exactly the right procedure. You know, and we all know the procedure is if you take it to that highest level and you still haven't got an answer for this wrongdoing that you suspect is taking place, that's the point you go externally to blow the whistle. But he'd taken it up the chain of command. I just love the way he went about his business. And then I said, the moment the board of directors knew, they took immediate action, which is exactly what should happen in these situations. That feels like an exam scenario there in a nutshell and almost the response that we would expect students to give in a circumstance series of, of points in an yep. answer. Um, my understanding is also on the back of this, Tesco's then established a much more publicly known whistleblowing policy and we've seen that come into lots of businesses not just on the back of this issue but on the back of lots of issues where companies are now much more um, public with if you spot something that you think is wrong this is what you do about it yeah it's something that is becoming more and more well known but you're absolutely right. This is an exam question. This is exactly what we'd expect people to write in an exam question. And, and this is where when we go into exams, and I've seen this in ACCA exams and ICAW exams, people kind of look at it as, oh, they've thrown in five extra marks to talk about ethics. What do I need to write here? 
But this is something that's massively important if you're actually working in practice. We've got a responsibility to look out for these things and deal with them in an appropriate way. Because whistleblowing isn't about just telling the world. There is a process that you need to follow. I mean, to make sure that we follow that process correctly. And these days, you've got full legal protection for doing it. If you go about things in the right way, and you talked about the chain of command that he went through, you talked about keeping documentary evidence. So you've got evidence, you've got facts. You talked about avoiding tipping people off because that can prejudice a future inquiry. All of that stuff, I hope, will resonate with people listening to this thinking, do you know what? I have actually seen that in my course materials. I've seen that in model answers that examiners write because that is exactly the way you need to be explaining things in the exam scenario. Is there anything else you would like to discuss around the case study that you've put together for us this evening, Dave? So I just think that it it brings together so many different elements of, of accountancy. And if you're just starting your studies, it might be you pick up on one of those things and think, oh yeah, I know about accruals or another how I record revenue. If you're a finalist, then I'm hoping you're looking at it and thinking, wow, that's how everything can fit together in, a, in the real world. And as accountants, we need to have awareness of all of these different elements you know, to make sure that we are looking after the finances of the businesses that we're involved with. I think it's been a great episode from the perspective of there should be something here for every single student to take away. Very, very relevant, as we say, to the exam world. I have seen fraud scenarios and questions coming into many more of the exams, many more of the syllabuses. The AAT new syllabus has really ramped this up. The AAT now talk about something called the fraud triangle, which is a really good model that you've basically explained to everybody this evening. <laughs> Three aspects of fraud. There is the motive. You talked about the motive. Tesco's were struggling financially. They had experienced heightened competition and they were worried that their results were going to go down and that would have impacts on their share price and their return for investors. We have the second aspect of the triangle, opportunity. What we've talked about tonight is some fairly complex accounting. And frauds quite often are masked by the complexities of accounting standards and accounting detail that mean it's much harder for somebody to spot a problem if they don't really understand the correct way to account for it in the first place. You also talked about a potential opportunity with regards to changes of director. And I don't think it's a coincidence that at this time Tesco's were going through quite a big change at board level which meant actually people think, well, hold on a minute. If nobody in the senior director team knows what's going on, we might be able to get away, for want of a better term, with some funny accounting adjustments. And then the third aspect of the triangle is rationalisation. People justifying to themselves why they are committing the fraud. And I think I can hear discussions, if people were aware of things like, it's just a timing difference. This stuff will actually sort itself out in another year's time because everything will come back round. And yes, it was a timing difference, 
but the timing difference meant results were showing drastically different profits to what was genuinely going on there. And the ramifications were that were people were making decisions, investment decisions, stock pricing decisions around information that wasn't reliable. So very relevant for the fraud triangle. We've covered financial accounting. So great shout out for accruals and prepayments and this funny rebate system that they were working with their suppliers. We've covered some financial management this evening. We've talked about confidence of stock markets. You've talked about how share prices are established in a market and why when this news broke, it wiped, as you said, two billion off the share price of Tesco's overnight. And we've also talked about the response to ethical scenarios. You've talked about the need to keep records. You've talked about the need to whistleblow. We've talked about the ways to go about that. Dave, it's covered everything. It's been a real 360 look at the world of accountancy and particularly the world of accountancy syllabuses and exams. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for doing the research. I think at that point we will say that's it. Tesco's go and look it up for yourselves. All of this stuff is online. Go and do some searching online. You will find news articles from the time. You will find news articles that retrospectively look back over it. But thank you, Dave. I think that's been a really useful and interesting episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the FI podcast with your hosts, Ben and Dave. As always, you can head over to the show notes where you can find the links and resources spoken about in today's episodes. Please remember to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode and leave a rating and review.